Today, how to find God right where we lost him. Coffee with Kramer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Kramer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. It's been a few weeks since we have had an episode strictly related to a passage of Scripture. And so as I work through the Psalms, uh, I want to share a word from Psalm 42 today, just to read through it with you, talk about uh, where it goes, where it carries us. And this is a, a new kind of journey for us, because even though we've been doing Psalms, we've been doing them from the first book of the Psalms, which are largely Davidic Psalms. They are written by David, ascribed to David, describing moments in David's life. And this one is different. Uh, it says, even in the, in, the, in the superscript, to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. You'll recognize this psalm as soon as I begin to read it. Uh, in fact, I'll give you the first phrase, as the deer pants for the water brooks. Uh, this is how it says it in the New King James, as the deer pants for the water brooks. Uh, so pants my soul for you, oh my God. So you get, uh, you know that language. Uh, we use it all the time. The interesting thing about it is that it is a psalm, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Uh, and these are choir masters, leaders, more than that. They lead the worship of the tabernacle, of the temple. Uh, and the psalms that are composed by them then presumably are for the purpose of the worship that Israel would have uh, before God together. And of course, David is writing psalms not just so that he can sing them, but so that the congregation can sing them. He is the messianic figure, the Messiah of the Old Testament, and so he's leading his people into worship. I'm not saying that's distinct, but it is different for these to be written by the people who are leading the worship and for David to write it as their king who is being pursued as Messiah, as the shepherd, uh, and you know having the enemies on his tail. And Korah, the sons of Korah, as they're writing these psalms, are not writing them while they're lying in the wilderness wondering if God is going to spare them from the anger of Saul and so on. So, you know, uh, the sense is different. Now, I, I, and I don't mean by that the words are necessarily different. I don't mean by it that the themes necessarily change. But I've never gone through the Psalms this way, where, where I'm going through all of them one at a time and studying the details of them best that I can uh, to understand what each one conveys as a message perfectly fulfilled in the Messiah and then realizing our worship through those psalms. This is my first time. And starting in Psalm 42 as book two of the psalms was uh, eye-opening because it is written in a completely different form than what I saw in the first 41 psalms in my reading of them. 
you know, I, I so we can prejudice this so easily, and I do. I, I've done discourse analysis; it's part of what I did in my dissertation. I I value it, and I I think it's important. But I also know how fragile <laughs> its conclusions can be. So I'm not I'm not saying this with any authority, but but man. Uh, the difference between the first 41 Psalms and Psalm 42 and, and Psalm 43, uh, but we'll talk about that one another day, uh, is remarkable. And part of the remarkability of it is, uh, part of what makes it so remarkable, that is, is that uh, in Psalm 42, the metaphors are, are more nuanced. It is written in a more artistic style based on my reading of it as poetry and it's written in a way that, that where the structure is distinct from everything that was going on in forty and in forty one and before that. And in fact, I would say it this way: that as I was reading the first forty one Psalms, they were much more organic. Uh, they had a much stronger sense. And again, I could be reading this into it. We all have frail psyches, but it it seemed much more organic and more like you know David out in the wilderness was writing these Psalms as he's, as he's fleeing his enemies. This one is so magnificent, so beautiful in the way it's written, uh, and I mean so planned in the way that it's written. Uh, it just has a different kind of feel to it. That doesn't make it better. I'm not saying that. They're all magnificent in their own way, and those of you who know poetry know organic sometimes is the better way to write poetry. All good. But this one does feel like a poem written by worship leaders for the sake of the worship in the congregation, and in a beautiful way, in a very good way. So that's how I want to uh, start out. It's just us recognizing that we're supposed to use this to worship together, to say these words together, to sing this song together. That's the point of these psalms, that we take them together and we repeat the words together. And even though they didn't use the same kind of Western music that we use to sing songs, a psalm is a song, and we are singing them to God together. This is how their prayers are unified. They are repeating the words of these psalms as songs to God. And I, I, know, I know you think I'm just talking about psalms in general. I'm talking about this psalm, Psalm 42. As you'll see later in the psalm, it refers directly to the songs that God gives to us as a part of what this psalm itself is about, which makes sense as the first psalm in the book of the Psalms that begins with, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah in the ESV, as a deer pants for flowing streams, soul pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. And then this refrain, which is repeated at the very end of the psalm, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet again, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In the ESV, it goes ahead and puts that phrase, and my God, at the end of verse 5. It acknowledges that verse 6 has begun. 
in other translations, that my God part goes to down to verse 6 and the next part of the psalm. So we're, we're not going to worry about that. But the difference, it makes a little bit of difference in how you might interpret the psalm, but not much. So we, we may talk about that in just a little bit. So here we're taking the first five verses because they come to that conclusion, and the psalm automatically divides itself in half by having that refrain used twice in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And in verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then the answer being the same. So uh, there's no doubt that the psalm is supposed to be taken in these two parts, and then each of those parts also has two elements to it. And so that's how we're going to look at the psalm. The first six verses come together, or the first five to six verses come together, and then out of that, the first three verses are making a simple point. The point in those first six verses, or those first five verses, five and a half verses, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, and so on, is that in our emptiness, we lose God. So remember, right at the beginning, I said what we were going to talk about today is how to find God right where we lost him. Well, the reality is, the way this psalm is written, we're supposed to see ourselves having lost God. And we lose him in our emptiness. He's describing the barrenness within us using the setting of the wilderness, the desert. So here I am out in a wilderness where I've lost my connection with God. And so in our emptiness, we lose God. And the first three verses are making the point. I'll read them to you again in just a moment, but I want you to hear this point as I'm reading them to you. The first three verses make this point that losing God is not about him, but about us. Losing God is about where we are, not about whether he even is. So the statements again go like this, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. So I'm doing without, I'm dry and barren and desolate. My soul is thirsting for God, for the living God wondering when I will ever come and appear again before God, and then acknowledging in the third verse that the only thing I have to consume, the only thing I'm living on right now are my tears. My tears have been my only food, my only source of sustenance. My grieving is the thing I'm living on right now. My tears have been my food day and night while they, and that statement, they've been, this has been all I've had day and night. And then it goes on to say, while they, and then the translations are, are different on this, how they want to take it, but it's continually. But the expression is all the day long, right? So while they continually, all day that is, say to me, where is your God? So you've lost your God, and it's obvious you've lost your God. I mean, look at all the grieving you're having to do, and look at the emptiness that's a part of your life. So in our emptiness, we lose God, and then our enemies challenge us about that. And what we're, what we're longing for, and what the sons of Korah are describing in the poem, what we should acknowledge here, is that what we want is to get back to God. We want to get back to our community, Remember later in the psalm, he's going to say, I remember going up to the house of God with the people of God. I would, I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God. That's in the very next verse, in verse 4. So this, this idea that we want to get back to God is not just back to a concept of God or remembering that God exists. It's back to the worship of God, which the sons of Korah are providing in this psalm, of course. 
So I want to get back to the community. I want to get back to the blessing that comes with walking with God and being in his presence so that I'm not thirsty, so that tears are not my only companion every day. And I want to get back to worshiping God, humbling myself before him. The, and the, the question, where is your God, at the end of verse 3, is implying that God is lost. Where'd your God go? It's as if, uh, for instance, Elijah is taunting the prophets of Baal when they're praying, or the priests of Baal when they're praying for the fire to fall from heaven, and he's giving them the same kind of, uh, he's throwing the same thing in their face. Oh, yeah, where's your God? Maybe he's gone off on vacation. Maybe he's asleep, you know, something like that. And And the psalmist for us is saying, that's what I'm facing. I'm out here somewhere where I'm not hearing from God. I'm out here where I am desolate, and my enemy is able to taunt me with these words, where is your God, as if God is lost. And yet the psalmist is making it clear in every part of the image, because remember, this is written for worship in the temple. It's written for worship in Jerusalem, on the holy hill, right? So we ascend to the throne of God Our lack of being in the presence of God is clearly about where we are, not about whether God exists or where God went. God is on the mountain. I used to go and worship there, but now I'm out here in the wilderness. And so all of the language of this metaphor is about me being in the wilderness. It's about me being where there's no water and not being able to come and worship before God. So losing God in these first three verses ends up being about where we are. Uh, for those of you who've been to Israel, a lot of you listening probably have been at some point. I just mean to tour the land, you know, see what's out there and stuff. Uh, when you when you go over there, one of the things, uh, one of the first times I went to Israel, the first time I went to Israel back uh, 13, 15 years ago, uh, our, one of the things our guide pointed out when we were in the southern, in the Negev, when we were down in the south, in the desert areas, uh, he said this is one of the things that gives Israel its sense of identity. I, I'm just telling you what the guide said. But I think it's true. In reading, in reading Old Testament passages since then, and even the New Testament, I, I, think, I think this is confirmed in the things that are expressed in Scripture. A part of how Israel identifies itself is a people who have been able to go through the barren wilderness and still arrive at this place where they're blessed and uh, be able to live in a well-watered land and take care of themselves. But they had to go through the difficulty of the wilderness. And this is true of every Messianic figure and of every leader uh, that Israel would respect, that they go through this wilderness experience, whether it's Moses or David or Elijah or whoever you want to pick, or Jesus being out in the wilderness himself. It's all there. And so in this language, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There's built in the language of Israel's history of being in places where water is life. And being in the wilderness means searching for that place where there is a well of water or a spring of living water, something to provide us life in the wilderness. And so in, for instance, Exodus 17, the language is this, all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is Moses, of course, leading the people out of Egypt and toward the promised land through the wilderness, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. I'm giving you this passage, and I'll read more of it in just a moment, so that you can remember this language is not just someone saying, and and I think our temptation is to read it, 
as someone just saying, oh, I have such a heart for God. This is not beginning with how passionate a person is for God. This is beginning with how desperately needy a person is for God. I'm doing without. I'm going to perish. I have nothing. My tears are all I have to drink. I need help. That's what this person is saying, and that and Israel understands that, and I think we're supposed to understand that. It's just that we've cordoned off our lives from any sense or possibility of need. We've created everything in the world to, uh, you know, put bubble wrap around ourselves so that we never find ourselves having to say to God, I'm desperate, help. We instead want to say to God, I'm okay, but if you want to add something to me, that'd be fine. I think that is a, I mean, obviously it's a huge loss on our part, but I think it's crippling to our understanding of what passages like this are supposed to mean. So in Exodus 17, you know, here's a nation out in the middle of a wilderness without any water to drink. I mean, this is, this is, people are going to start dying. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said to him, this is back in Exodus 17, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why are you quarreling with me? And why are you tempting, testing the Lord? The people thirsted there for the water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? This is what we prefer. But but Israel had to learn this in the journey. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children, our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what am I supposed to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you'll strike the rock and the water will come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, get you need to get all of this language to make sense of the rest of this psalm. When they're saying there's no water, God says, go strike a rock, and I'll give water out of the rock, and people will realize that they shouldn't have been testing me wondering if I'm among them or not. The problem isn't whether God's present. The problem isn't whether there's water. The problem is where the people are, literally in the wilderness where they can't find water, but more figuratively in their own souls where they're blaming God for not being among them. That's what they're failing at. He called the name of the place Mas and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so this person who's desperate for God's presence is inviting in Israel a a reminder that in those places where we're afraid, we no longer have contact with God. We should remember in in the very beginning of this, this is just the opening premise, that in that emptiness where we've lost God, it's about where we are, not about whether he is. It's a completely different issue. Okay, that's Israel in the background. And we can apply that to David being in the wilderness when he's fleeing Saul or, you know, a number of different times. Jesus being in the wilderness when he's fasting and doing without, his father's providing for him. All of those apply equally. 
but they don't apply to us directly. Not most of us. And I mean 99% of us. What applies to us is a different story. Genesis 21. And, and And it should make us, it should humble us that this applies so well to us. Genesis 21, you, you remember what's going on. Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and jealousy and sending Hagar out and I don't like her anymore, send her out and so on. And Abraham quibbling, oh God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to send her out. And God's saying, no, send her out. I'll take care of her. It'll be okay. So I will make, and this is what he says to Abraham, I will make a nation, this is in Genesis 21, starting in verse 13, of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. We read this so incorrectly. We read uh, the story of Hagar and Abraham as if Abraham should be punished because of uh, his lack of faith and so on. Uh, And they're, you know, practicing something that's cultural. I'm not saying we should practice it. I'm just saying the condemnation that we heap on Abraham is not something that's present in the way God deals with it. Because God does not say, Abraham, if you'd just been more patient, we wouldn't have had all the oil wars of the 1970s and 80s. He doesn't say that. It's not the source of human conflict in the world that Ishmael was born. Here's how he talks about Ishmael, and listen to the story of where we enter the gospel picture, all of us who are not a part of Israel to begin with. So I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he's your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he took bread and a skin of water. This is like nothing. Here, uh, have a gallon of gas, and then go hit the highway and just see where you can get. Abraham rose early in the morning, took a bread and a skin of water, took took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. This is in the desert. And when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Can you imagine the devastation? of being so forlorn that you can't bear to watch your child die. And so you put it under a bush. So she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, and she said, don't let me look on the death of this child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice, and she wept in the desert because she has no water for her or her child. Desperate. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is troubling you, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the voice of this boy where he is. Get up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. This is not God making a curse out of Ishmael. He blesses Ishmael. I will make him into a great nation in the middle of a desert where he's desperate for water. He says, I'm going to make him a great nation that God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water he provided. This is not a minor trope in the Old Testament. We are out in the wilderness where there is no hope of survival and God says, I got water right here. That's not a problem. I can take care of you. You you think I'm only in certain places. I'm not. I'm here. So God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy to drink and God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow and he thrives in the desert. He thrives in the place where people start out by saying, I'm so desperate for water, I have nothing to drink but tears. 
And God gives him an abundance and an abundant life. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And and if your you know if your conservative residual is saying to the back of your mind, no, 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 Ishmael's the enemy. Israel is the good son then you're ignoring the fact that God has brought the Gentiles in, a la you. He brought you in. He has given us water in this wilderness as well. Anyway, this is the, the, these stories are the backdrop against which Psalm 42 takes on so much more meaning when we say, in worship to God together as a people, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And when we as a people think to ourselves, oh, we're in a desert wilderness, there's no God here. He says, why are you tempting me by wondering, is the Lord among us or not? Seriously, is the Lord among us or not? And so on. So in the the next two verses, verses four and five of Psalm 42, it makes this point that that emptiness itself actually has a value to it. And they begin to use, this is part of that artistic metaphorical language I'm talking about that makes a psalm like this sort of stand out. They use the language of drink offerings, oblation offerings. (laughs) This is insane. This person is in the wilderness in the desert where they don't have enough water to drink. And now we're going to start using the language of pouring out a sacrifice to God in this wilderness. So when I remember these things, the psalmists say, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. This is verse four. I pour out my soul within me. That language is deliberate. That's the language of an oblation, a a drink offering, where we, we take it up and we drink a portion, then we pour out the other portion before God. And this pouring out the soul, I'll give you illustrations of this in a moment, is the language that's used when that drink offering isn't literal. It's not a a cup of wine that we've poured out into the ground to represent blood or something like that. It's literally, it is more literally, our soul itself being poured out of us in that figure of the oblation. So when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. Because I used to go with the multitude up to the temple where I could offer the sacrifices, where I could pour out the drink offering. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. We we had abundance, and we worshiped together before God. And the, the whole point of this is the the analogy being extended between having a feast and an abundance to drink so that I'm pouring out offerings before God in his temple and then the barrenness where I find myself now and all I can do is remember that I used to go to the temple and I used to have these feasts and yet in this moment of doing without, I do have something I can pour out before God, something that reminds me, something that invites me to be before God. I can pour out my soul Before God, I still have that. I was drinking my own tears. Now I'm pouring out this soul to God. To remember when 
Hannah prayed to God, right? So Eli is the priest, uh, the the one who's or the you know prophet priest kind of guy who's you know prior to Samuel. And Hannah is praying because she wants a child and doesn't have one, and she goes with Elkanah. You know, she's offering her prayer, and she's sort of mumbling, and Eli is rebuking her. Why are you acting drunk, you know, and so on. And, and she says, no, my Lord, I'm, I, I'm not drunk. I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink. This is important because she's not taking in. She's not imbibing. She's not feasting. I've drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have. And she gives the exact contrast. Instead, I have poured out what I have. I've poured out my soul before the Lord. That's the same language. I poured out my soul within me before the Lord. Don't consider your maidservant a wicked woman because out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. This is what it means for us to pour out our soul before the Lord, to have a grief, to have a complaint that we no longer harbor. It's no longer glossed over by the fact that we're feasting with our community. It's no longer glossed over by the comfort that we have, this barrenness, this wilderness, where we said, our enemies are saying to us, where's your God now? In that barrenness and that wilderness, I finally realized that the thing I have, the only thing I have that I can pour out before God as an offering now is my soul itself. I have pour, I'm not taking in the drinks. I'm pouring out my soul before God. The, the Messiah himself expresses this in Psalm 22, David, and then our understanding of the psalm, you know, that it's a messianic psalm, obviously. In Psalm 22, I am poured, this is in verse 14, I am poured out like water. In, I'm in the wilderness, why have you forsaken me? That's how that psalm begins, remember? Why have you forsaken me? God, God, why have you forsaken me? I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. We'll come back to those bones later in this psalm. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast, so I'm pouring out the water of my soul, the wax of my heart that's melted because of the pain that I'm in right now. This is about when our hope and strength and comfort and power and encouragement have been spilled out into the barren desert around us. It's about us recognizing what verse 5 says, that that is our offering before God to say, I have no hope but you. And so an invitation to return to him. Why are you cast down? See the down I poured out into the ground? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you so disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet again still praise him for the help of his countenance and my God. Whether that expression goes there or at the beginning of verse 6 is fine, either way. So let's take it and put it in verse 6 now and do the second half of this. Because... The psalm divides itself into these two parts, the first part being that in our emptiness we lose God, but the second being that in his fullness we find him. Not in us, simply, you know, bucking up and making tough and filling ourselves up. In his fullness we find him. So in verses 6 and 7, the first part of this one. And uh, this one is about, just so you can hear it while I'm reading it to you, the, the contrast between where we find ourselves right now, having been cast down out in the desert where it's dry and barren and we're empty, right? 
And then where he is, where we know there's abundance, right, in the, in the temple, where drink offerings are being poured out. The contrast is between where we are and where he is. And our despair has created our ability to see where the hope is. Our despair creates the contrast that allows us to hear the sound of his voice again. So in verse 6, oh my God, my soul is cast down, down low within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the river, the waters, and from the heights of Hermon, the northern part of Israel, where there are streams and waterfalls and abundance, from the hill Mizar, not from Jerusalem. He doesn't say that. So still out away from the temple, from the tabernacle, from the people of God. I'm still out here, but I remember you. I remember you where the Jordan is and where the mountains are and where the hill Mizar is because I hear deep calling unto deep. I hear the waters calling out to each other, not because he's returned to the temple, not because he's arrived at the eschaton or the kingdom of God, but out here in the real world where he still lives, he can hear the waterfalls of God. And I think there's a little intention. I mean, obviously in the north, the waters actually do fall and you can hear them. But I think there's a little intentional. There are waterfalls in the south as well. And I think the point of this is I remember the abundance of those places because I can hear the waterfall over there, even out here in the desert, even out here in the wilderness. But then he goes beyond saying, ah, I realize now that even when I'm away from the temple, even when I'm away from the people of God, I can still hear the voice of God deep, calling unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls, it gets even better than that because the next phrase in verse 7 is, all your waves and your billows have gone over me. So even though I haven't found my way back to God yet, I'm out here where God is pouring. In the first verse, I'm panting for God because I'm so dry and barren out here in the wilderness. And now in verse 7, his waves and billows are flowing over me. All your waves and billows have gone over over me, making the point that his floods overwhelm us with his presence now. And the lower we are is sort of the imagery I think that's present here is the lower we are, the louder the crash of the waterfall that's coming from his grace. The, The more aware we are of how deeply we're buried in the goodness of his his faithful love, his hesed, his his mercy on us. And so in verses 8 through 11, he concludes it with the hope that we receive from him, and that hope is our, and this is, and I mean hope in the sense that Paul uses it. You know, it wouldn't be hope if it was already realized. If we were in the temple or the tabernacle, we wouldn't be hope. We're still out here. We're still out here in the wilderness. But hope is this fountain that God has for us in the desert. It's our sustenance on the way to God. And and, and it's provided for us in a couple of ways, but the most important one is that our hope for the future is the thing that gives us that help that we need right now in the present, and that's especially present in verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. Okay, fine. So during the day, and maybe this is an appeal to the 
to the desert heat, to the sun? Maybe, maybe it's an appeal to the comfort that we have during the day when our enemies can't take us, when we're not as afraid of the animals that might drag us off into the darkness. Maybe you don't worry about things like that, but every once in a while it comes to my mind. Anyway, the point is, certainly people in the wilderness had that in mind. I don't know what, I don't know which way he's taking the loving kindness in the daytime. My tendency is to think he's giving the contrast to what he's about to say about the night. So he's saying, in the daytime, when we're blessed, we see his loving kindness. So we recognize in the good things that God does for us, when when the daylight is shining and when things are bright and clear around us, we hear the waterfalls of God's grace. We see the abundance that he's provided for us. And we realize that we don't have to wait until we're in heaven to realize that every good thing is a gift from God, right? So that's good. But then the contrast with that, I think, is, and in the night, his song shall be with me. That's where that phrase comes from. So this is, this is Psalm 42, 8. And in the night, his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. That is identifying what that song is that he's given us in verse 8. By day, it says in the ESV, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I will say in verse nine, he says to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why why do I say this? Because it's night. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? But in this night, I'm I'm not speaking words out of emptiness. I'm not speaking them out of being betrayed or forsaken. Remember the Psalms themselves give us these words so that as we're expressing them, We're being reminded by the waterfalls of God's grace that he knows where we are. He hasn't forgotten us. So when we're expressing with the whole community, why have you forgotten me, O God? When we're saying with the Messiah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is the enemy able to ask me this question? Where's your God now? When all of those things are happening, I realize not only that your loving kindness is present in the daytime, but that you've given me this song to sing in the night. And my song is a prayer to the God of my life. He he gives us this song that we sing back to him while we're waiting for his presence to be fully realized. He gives us this song when our lives are broken in shards and other people don't even want to be around us. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, how can you read this psalm and not be driven not only to Israel in the wilderness and dry and looking for a well, or Hagar in the wilderness and barren and looking for a well and finding it and God hearing them, but also thinking of John 4, right? The woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. When Jesus meets her there, he comes to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, and he goes back to remind us about how God provided this well for his people in Israel in ancient times. Near the plot of ground, this is in John 4, that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. That's the, the, he's reminding us of how God has provided this water for his people in the wilderness. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Jesus himself is wearied. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water from that well, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, an outsider, a Samaritan woman? The Jews don't have dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you, you have nothing to draw with. Yeah, I'm, I'm desperate for water, but I have a bucket, and I can get water out of the well. And the well is, you, you don't have anything to draw with. The well is deep. Where, where, were you go, where are you going to get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will, be, will become a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life out here in the wilderness when you're doing without I have water for you. Then we arrive at the 10th verse now. As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me. So I have this hope that's being given to me even in the darkest of moments at night, this song, this prayer that's been given to me to offer back to God. And yet he says, but I'm, but I'm not in a place where I say, oh, my problems are gone. Oh, I, I'm no longer out in the desert. Oh, there are no more enemies. It's not that. All of those things are still there. As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long. And this harks back to the third verse where he said the same thing about all day long. This is what my enemies are saying to me. My tears have been my food day and night, while they, my enemies, continually, all day long, say to me, where is your God? That's exactly what they're doing now. My enemies, my location hasn't changed. That's what I'm saying in the psalm. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? This is the night that this psalm is talking about. Where is your God? My enemies are reproaching me. It's as if my bones have been broken. I'm at the end of my rope. When your bones are broken in a conflict, you're out of luck. You can't fight anymore. He is at the end of his rope. His soul is poured out. And his response, now that he realizes God has given him a song to sing in the night, written by the sons of Korah who teach the people of God how to worship together. This is what they do. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disturbed, disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. This is the song that he's given us, so that when he says, why are you cast down? I'm cast down because I'm out here still living in the wilderness. We are still in a world that's broken. We are still in a place where even if we are not personally suffering, and if we're honest about it, we will recognize the suffering we have in our own lives, but even if we're not suffering to the point where we're broken down, our grief for those who are around us, which we carry on their behalf, just like any people of God would do, would break us in the same way so that we say, I am cast down, but then we say, but why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted? Because your hope is in God, and he is this well of water springing up into eternal life within you. That's where our hope resides constantly. He is the help of my countenance and my God. And I know, easy to say the words, easy to say, oh, yeah, well, I just hope in God, and so everything's okay. This is not that. 
This is the sons of Korah saying, why do you think we write these psalms? Why do, we, why do you think we invite you to come and worship with the people of God? Remember what he said at the beginning of the psalm? I remember how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. That song has returned in the night to us so that we pick up the psalm itself and out in the desert drink from this fountain of living water that God has given us in the form of this praise, this worship that comes from singing these psalms together. And so I'll close by just reading to you the words of this psalm and asking you to take up the psalms in your own mouth, in your own nights, and offer them back up to God as a drink from him to refresh your soul, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. <laughs> Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp. <laughs>